Hey there. Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. This time, we're headed back to the beginning with a review of John Carpenter's student film turned low-budget feature debut, Dark Star. Plus, I've got a recap of the latest box office battle in the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. And we've both got something you should definitely check out in really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Yeah, what's up? Did you see uh, the news come across the old John Carpenter newswire? Oh, no, I avoid the internet completely. I just watch movies now. (laughs) I understand. So uh, John Carpenter has a new album coming out. Like like of new songs? Well, kind of. So this is this album's called Anthology. And then parenthetically, movie themes 1974 to 1998. Um, And so it's old theme songs from his films, but he's re-recorded them. Uh, so okay. it's sort of a, um, I'm not really sure what to think about it yet. The only song that I've heard is actually the theme for Christine, a movie which I have not seen, but I'm really looking forward to. Mm, you're missing uh, out. I, I know. Um, but he just released a music video for that. I will put that in the show notes. Um, judging by, I don't know what the original theme sounds like, but judging by this, I'm really excited to see and hear Christine now. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good one. I can't believe you haven't seen that yet. Did, did you see the video? Did you hear the song? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't. Okay. It's kind of got this dark synthy, like, which I, I guess describes John Carpenter, but it, it kind of has a Cliff Martinez feel to it, which, I mean, all of his stuff or his synth stuff, at least, always feels like a modern take on John Carpenter's style. So it, it feels right, but it feels like it's got kind of this sexiness to it, like, you know, like the drive theme or something like that. Um, well, Christine's a pretty sexy car, so <laughs> I mean, so it's just so in addition to this new album, uh, which is coming out on vinyl. I, I should mention that as well. I, I had never expected anything different. Of course. Um, I mean, if you're doing physical media now, why would you do anything else? Um, but he is going on tour, which is super exciting, except he's going to be nowhere near us. <sighs> yeah, I actually did see that part. And I, I started doing the math. I'm like, how can I get to? Oh, they're all very far away. Yeah, it's like East Coast, West Coast, and then like Chicago. Look, John Carpenter, you don't have to take the term flyover country literally. You can stop here. It's fine. I, I just moved to a to a city that's infinitely more populated than uh, my you know hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and still coming nowhere near Houston, Texas. Yeah. I mean, look, a, a lot of times artists will you know, announce a couple extra dates at the end and like, oh, we'll hit Texas and New Orleans. Yeah. By a lot of times, I mean very occasionally for bands that I like. I mean, or you uh, get that if they're if they're doing the bus thing, they'll do a, they've got a night off and they, they stop in, that sort of thing. Yeah, that they never stop in for a night off in Baton Rouge. Just want, want you to know that. Never has happened. In Tulsa, they always would on the way down to ACL. Like September, October in, in Tulsa was really great times at Canes most of the time. But uh, no, no luck. Maybe, you know, maybe he extends the tour. Maybe if, I mean, I, I'm definitely keeping an eye out for adding new tour dates coming anywhere close because I would definitely, uh, I would definitely do a drive, uh, a, you know, a, a minor road trip um, to see. Are, are, are you ready to have War Starts at Midnight review a concert? 
Yes. Although I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I would be more excited about hearing him do the lost themes, the songs Mm -hmm. from the lost themes albums than his old um, themes. I mean, I, as much as I like, you know, his scores to his films, I think um, there's something that feels, uh, I don't know, fresh and new and, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I love those, those couple of new albums so much. Like, I'd, I'd love to see those be more the, uh, the meat of the show. And then, you know, and then you do the encore and you bring out the hits. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to go and see John Carpenter perform nothing from a movie. That's, uh, going to make the crowd very happy. The real question, do you think he will perform the theme from Dark Star? I don't know. I, you know, I, I've got to say, I like that theme better than at least one or two, at least one of the, uh, the movies we've already reviewed, which we will mm. get into that. Uh, well, why don't we get into it right now? Let's, uh, what do you say we talk about Dark Star? All right, let's arm the bomb bay. Ship's log, entry number 1,943. Dark Star cruising at light speed through sector Theta 990. En route to the Vale Nebula for destruction of unstable planets. Our ETA is 17 hours. Uh, ship systems continue to deteriorate. Oh, yeah. The short circuit in the rear seat panel which killed Commander Powell is still faulty. The, uh, the storage... And because he's sitting next to Commander Powell's seat, it continues to bother Pinback. Uh, oh yeah, storage area nine uh, self-destructed last week and destroyed the ship's entire supply of toilet paper. So. All right, Jake. Uh, I'm not really sure Dark Star necessarily needs a big formal introduction. See, I, th- I think that's funny because my Blu-ray had a big formal written introduction before the film came on. Did yours have this? The written no. Yeah, before mine came on, it was it was from the um I think uh Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. Um had a I don't know, it, it looked like he literally typed it on a typewriter and signed it at the end, and it was just a black screen with white text in typewriter font How did scrolling I miss by this? saying, Hey, the old VHS tapes of this looked terrible. We redid this solely because we didn't want it to look so bad. This is John Carpenter and I's film that we shot over four years. Um, it's yeah. our, our essentially a student film and, and it explains where it's coming from. Um, <laughs> and then it says, I have two, uh, two things you should look out for in the film. One, can you tell what character was played by three actors? And two, can you tell what character was under the influence of LSD <laughs> or what I, actor was? <laughs> I bet Dan O'Bannon was the one under the influence of LSD. That's, that's what I was thinking. And actually, I can tell you the one who was played by three actors as well, which is, is Talby. It's the, uh, the guy who's basically separated from everyone else up in the dome. He was played by the Russian actor who, um, yeah. who played him and then by John Carpenter, who did his voice. And then, uh, by someone else as a stand in because, uh, the scenes with him and Doolittle, the actor who played Doolittle was never on set with him. Really? Yeah. I, is that why they did shot reverse shot up in the dome? Yeah, I think so. And they've they've just got, you know, sort of, you know, you just sort of see 
the it, I think they even like masked in Doolittle's head, like his hair into yeah. shots of Talby that already uh, existed. Something something to that effect. Hey, I, I'm I'm gonna be honest on this film. It it the special effects were kind of cool, knowing what little amount they had to work with. Okay, so you're bringing up this uh, Dan O'Bannon intro, which I'm gonna have to go and look for now. See, I I watched the Blu-ray on my computer because I was kind of in transit and it didn't have like a full Blu-ray function on the, the app. It was just oh. sort of like, it was just sort of like pick your chapter and watch it. Um, so I'm going to have to go and find this, but um, that actually is sort of a perfect launch pad for a lot of these things. So the first question that I have for you is uh, really, I mean, how, how did you approach this film? Because it was a student film that was then expanded into a feature. And I think depending on your vantage point kind of can really uh, change your perspective and your um, appreciation or lack thereof for this film. This is what I knew about Dark Star going into this. When I enrolled in film school, my dad bought me a book, one of those little kind of not coffee table books, almost like a bathroom reader that was like a thousand and one movies you must see before you die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was, I think, on the very first page. Really? And they said it was like an absurdist, to some extent, comedy, where a ship is in outer space, they've jettisoned their toilet paper, they're trying to deal with these existential... <laughs> and and I, and I thought it was going to be a, a little... Um, like, the, the humor was going to be a little more wet, you know? Yeah, Like, yeah, jokes yeah. and stuff. Which it wasn't, but I approached it knowing it was a comedy, which I think is important... Because in that intro, he also, Dan O'Bannon also said, you must know this is a comedy. Yeah. The people in the theater that we rented out did not know it was a comedy and they did not like it. It was the, it was the opposite of a dangerous men screening is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But probably- with, with that preface, with that being all you knew, like what, what was your, I mean, how did, how did you, did you warm up to this or. Not. Yeah, yeah. I, I, at first, I was like, "Oh, this might be uh, a little bit rough." But some of it was me appreciating what they did on screen. Mm-hmm. Some of it was appreciating how they how they did the sets and some other stuff. A lot of it was seeing Proto Carpenter. Yeah, seeing Carpenter start doing the Carpenter things, he would end up making him famous. You know, I, I think it's as much though a collaboration between. You know, you don't really think of Carpenter as a collaborator. You think of you know, like with his mm-hmm. films, it is John Carpenter's. Halloween, John Carpenter's mm-hmm. insert title. Um, but I feel like you can really feel as much Dan O'Bannon who went on to later write Alien, which is in mm-hmm. some ways like this is like the farcical proto alien. You know, they're, they're space mm-hmm. truckers and they're trapped inside this very lived in spaceship. You know, it's, it's the future, but it's a future that is dirty and dingy. And you've, you even got this female computer talking to, um, mm-hmm. to the folks. Like there's, there's a lot of things that kind of connect with, with Ben. And I think, I think the humor as well feels very much. Uh, an outlier for Carpenter, like not to say that he doesn't have humor in his films, but this particular dry, weird sort of it, and maybe it's because so much of it is pinback and that's played by O'Bannon. But I, I don't know. I, I really felt that, um, you know, you could, you could, you can definitely feel and see where Carpenter started here, but you can also see him working with another collaborator, which I think is interesting because we just haven't really seen that 
elsewhere in his career. Right. But it also it also made it really interesting to see parts of this film and go, oh, that part is clearly John Carpenter picked the framing. John yeah. Carpenter picked to move this camera down a long Oh, absolutely. There's hallway. well there even even that it's the first time we go inside the ship and that that dolly backwards in that tiny little confined control room that mm-hmm. that like right away is totally like even though it's not an anamorphic widescreen, it's like I'm watching a John Carpenter movie. I'm clearly watching a John Carpenter and, movie. Like, and parts of it are not are not Carpenter. You can watch it and go, uh, and maybe they are, and he was learning, but you can see the things that he put into it. And I thought that that makes it a valuable piece right there. Well, and that's the thing is it's a, it really is a student film. It shouldn't be judged as, in my opinion, it shouldn't be judged as, well, this is the first thing John Carpenter ever made. And, uh, so this is, you know, let's, let's hold it up against, um, well, let's hold it up against Kubrick, which I think O'Bannon, um, was, at, especially at the time, a, a huge Kubrick fan. And so there's some of that also, like, uh, the, um, the computer versus Hal in 2001. There's yeah, a bit of it, that. It is Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to, to, to love 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey. Um, to stop worrying and love bomb number 20. And love um, bomb number 20. <laughs> but there's even, there's even like, I think maybe a mesh between the two of them when after Pinback, uh, finally escapes from the elevator and that like weird, which the elevator thing is sort of, um, one of my favorite like isolated parts, but should not be in this movie at all. And it's one of the things that they just added to pad time to turn it into a feature length film. Yes. But also it had that little bit of horror that John Carpenter probably really liked. John Carpenter's like, let's, let's, let's put a little horror scene in here. Let's put a monster. There's, there's suspense and there's like, it's so it, it has that, but then it also has this almost like vaudeville slapstick silent Uh film nature to it as well. Um, yeah, which it, is, it felt a little bit like a cartoon. He goes through the shaft. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the the monster goes back and pull, and just the way the monster looked. Look, he was clearly a balloon. <laughs> I know that he was a balloon. There, there have been worse worse monsters in movies that were made after that for more money. No, I love it. Like I think, I think if you didn't have that that satirical tone and the the dry humor, it wouldn't work. Um, but it's something that I'm willing to like, they, they go just far enough by putting like the little creature feet on it to make you like, okay, it's, it's fun and it's goofy. And there's, there's this weird antagonistic relationship between the alien and pinback that, that I really kind of love. And, and it was, it was a li- not scary, but when that, when its feet actually got on the guy, Carpenter shot it in such a way that he felt like a legitimate threat. He made a, a balloon feel a little bit like a threat. Like, I might watch this balloon eat a man. <laughs> yeah. And actually, do you know who played uh, the beach ball alien in this? Uh, Orson Welles. Yes. No, uh, a guy <laughs> named Nick Castle, whose name I assume you probably don't recognize. Did, did he play a beach ball in another film? He he did not, but he did play an antagonist in another John Carpenter film. A film which I should point out you have never seen, which oh, is... Which- Halloween. He plays the shape. I don't even know that is. The shape is Michael Myers, but the everyone, everyone in the cast and crew referred to Michael Myers as the shape. You will understand that when you finally see Halloween. Jake has never seen Halloween. You haven't seen Christine. Let's just not. This is true. This is true. Um, He also wrote Hook and directed Major Pain. (sighs) I've recommended Major Pain on this on this program before. I know you have. 
That's awesome. I that's I did recognize it. I was like, I kind of I kind of recognize it. <laughs> okay, so how how did you figure out how they did the elevator shaft? Were you a little impressed with that? So I I watched this movie twice. I watched it once on Fandor, where it it's streaming on Fandor and Shutter right now, and then I also watched the Blu-ray. I got to say, the Blu-ray is a much better experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Fandor, it is a H or an SD sort of version. It's a little, it's pretty rough. And not to say that the Blu-ray is like pristine. It's still a rough student film shot on 16, blown up to 35, but it looks a lot better. Um, the first time I saw it, I had no idea. I was, I was trying to figure it out. And then I watched, there's actually on the Blu-ray, there's like a two hour making of documentary, which is, oh, really? Yeah, longer than the movie and well <laughs> worth watching. Really fun, really great. They couldn't get John Carpenter to do it, but they found an old interview with him of him talking about it. So yeah. they just go to, um, oh gosh, what's the captain's name? His, uh, his name is, uh, Commander Powell. Commander Powell. So they just cut to Commander Powell in the, uh, in the cryogenic frozen state <laughs> anytime they show or they have John Carpenter speaking, which is a nice little touch. That's, yeah. Um, but really I think worth the like $10 or, and change or whatever this Blu-ray is for that. Wait. So you know how they did the hallway scene? I know how they did I it. I mean, the, uh, the elevator shaft. I do. What was it a hallway? It was, so they actually, they built the set. It was a long hallway and then they built the set around it, uh-huh. essentially. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so he's suspended. He's sitting on top of a board so that he mm-hmm. kind of has flop and then, yeah. and then he's moving his legs around and stuff. I mean, it's, it's pretty I, I figured there was so, like a dolly under him or something, like a little, um, you know, well, that's, mechanics. It, it, the, the elevator skateboard. is a camera dolly. Oh, uh, okay. Like it's sitting yeah, on a camera that's dolly. That's pretty much what I figured. I was really close. Yeah. Um, I, I like the first time I didn't even try to figure it out. Cause I was like, this, this actually works really well. I, I don't want to kill the magic right now. Uh-huh. Um, and the second time it still held up even knowing exactly, uh, what the telltale signs were, even though like the, the one thing was I, I did notice cause they talked about, I guess they painted the floors silver mm-hmm. and you'll notice if you, you pay attention, like his face and his, uh, like jumpsuit <laughs> just get they have varying degrees of silver <laughs> as they're cutting around. <laughs> Look, I, I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff. They, he clearly showed promise in this film, both in the script, which was ambitious and in the production, which was also ambitious. Me and you, you and I, Chris have seen a lot of student films, uh, courtesy yeah. of the, the university of Tulsa <laughs> student film channel. And, uh, this was, I mean, it just, it showed so much promise. Oh, yeah. I, I was so happy with it. Just knowing what people make when they have no access to funds and yeah. that creative people still find a way to be creative and convincing and put big ideas onto the screen. I, I think all told the budget was something like $60,000, which mostly came from uh, Jack H. Harris, who most notably was producer on the blob. He executive produced this. And there was, I guess, actually sort of a falling out between him and Carpenter by the end. Um, but, uh, I mean, still shoestring, shoestring budget. And that was all sort of the reshoots and trying to get everything to match and, you know, going some individual effects and that sort of thing. It's were they it, at USC? Is that where they were? They started at USC and then they moved away from USC. There's a whole backstory there of like, uh, USC on a previous film that John Carpenter actually uh, wrote and I think edited that ended up winning a student Oscar um, or student Academy award. USC was like, no, we own all of this. Sorry. Oh. And so there was sort of a falling out there. Um, 
but they shot the student film parts, which were basically first bomb run, storm ruins laser, second bomb run, uh, phenomenology, and then bomb number 20, uh, comes to its conclusion. That was sort of the flow of, so basically most of the pinback stuff was added in because Dan O'Bannon was around and they could just say, okay, well, let's pad out with, with this. See, the interesting part about that, I liked how it felt a little bit episodic on the ship. Um, because it wasn't so focused, I thought it, it gave it a little bit of room and added to the absurdity a little bit of their situation. Yeah, I think I think tonally it's right. I do think it lingers a little bit too much in some places. Like one of the other things is when Doolittle goes and plays his little uh, his his little bottle organ thing um, that was added just to pad out, you know, a couple minutes, and it's like it's kind of like I like the song, but it's also why is this in this this movie? But that's the like. At the same time, holding it, judging it as, you know, a student film or what should really be a student film, it's still, I've seen worse. I've experienced worse. They, they clearly pulled off. I think somebody in, in that documentary even says, like, we went from making the most impressive student film in the world to the least impressive feature film. <laughs> that, that's really funny. I, I like that bottle scene, but I did think for a minute, like, what, where do you find all these glass bottles on a spaceship? <laughs> Somebody, uh, somebody like the, the art director or something actually like had that. He was like, so he told me, you know, to, to build this thing. And I, I don't really know where you'd get these glass bottles, but that, that doesn't matter. That's, that's funny. I like the song that he played, but it was no, uh, Benson, Arizona. Uh, Benson, Arizona is where I was like, okay, this is a great, like I, I'm, I'm ready for all of this, I guess. And it was, I think written by the DP. Or no, no, really? no. It was written by the uh, like visual effects guy. Let's have some music in here, Boiler. Sure thing. I made the sun shine down, but I see only one. Trying to think I'm over you. I find I'm just begun. The years move faster. Those desert skies, your cool touch in the night. Benson, Arizona, blue warm wind through your hair. My body flies the galaxies, my heart longs to be there. And, and this, this might be a stretch. It reminded me of the use of Hello Vietnam at the start of Full Metal Jacket. Huh. Um, it, it, I don't know why exactly, maybe because it had that kind of country and Western feel to it. Yeah, yeah. But it was interesting that it reminded me of a Kubrick movie that hadn't been met yet, made yet. Yeah, yeah. When, when they were kind of doing their version of Kubrick movies that had been made. Sure. They, they were in the right mind space. That's all I'm saying. No, I, that, I think that song is phenomenal. That song is great. Like, it's, it's perfect for setting both the comedic tone and the, like, weird, angsty, longing tone. And the, like, mm-hmm. it also, like, there's, there's something about this movie that feels so 70s in the way that they're sort of these these hippies that are, you know, they're these blue-collar hippie guys just lost in space, being controlled by, uh, I, I guess it's government, really, like government bureaucracy who won't even, you know, allow them to uh, fix their radiation shields because uh, there have been some cutbacks in Congress. I did like that terrible actor who was probably just some guy they knew in class who was like, mm-hmm. yeah. 
can't send you any radiation shields, but you got good ratings. It felt so student filmy, but everything were like the script was there. That guy wasn't. No, he he, he wasn't. Uh, and, and we've all cast people who didn't do as good as we thought they were going to do. Oh, uh, I like I like that we got him out of the way really early. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody after that was acceptable. Well, and then that also like setting that up up front then gives you the great payoff of Pinback's uh, diary later on, which <laughs> is maybe my favorite part of this entire movie. Um, it, like I love like the, the comedy there and the story there gives you it gives you so much depth in the character, in their mission, in all of that. And and I love the, you know, redacted gestures and and uh, lines of the joke and all that. It, it, that that part was pure genius. It was genius. I, I've seen very few student films that work this well. This is the best one. The, the, the second best student film ever made is uh, Star Wars Crapisode 1, um, which was one that used to show on the TU Film Channel. Made circa, what, 98, 99, probably? Nine, 99. They they had some old computers in that film that I think were contemporary when they were editing it. <laughs> it was, But it was made at TU years before we went there, and it somehow still was in rotation on the Film Channel. And it also, it, it was a Star Wars spoof. But it had the same sort of spirit as this film. Can I can, can be my really rad recommendation? Find Crapisode 1 and watch it. Yeah, I'll see if we can find it. I know there was a QuickTime or a Real Player video available <laughs> on the interwebs at one point. We'll see if we can find it. I might have it on a hard drive, actually. Available on Real Player. <laughs> <laughs> and at Hollywood uh. Video. <laughs> um, uh. my, I, yeah, I mean, and and it doesn't. It's not immaculate, you know, like all student films, it has its problems. Like I think their understanding of, is it quantum physics? Is that the, 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 because they've only aged three years, but they're, they've been out for 20 years. Is that? Yeah. They, they didn't get it yet, but they tried. Well, I mean, they, <laughs> interstellar did it a little right. bit. Well, my understanding would be that they would only age three years because for them, it had felt like three they, years, right? Three years of they have only experienced right. three years. Whereas of time, they yes. made it sound like they've only aged three years, but they have been alive for twenty years, based on some of the conversations and some of Pinback's uh, uh, diaries. Yeah, that that's that's the takeaway I had from it too. It's fine. It's uh, fine. What what did you think of the um, the existential conversation they had with Bomb Twenty? Oh, great. So the very, very good, very like, I mean, it, it's a little, it's a little student film screenwritery, a little bit, um, you know, but yes. it works. It works really well. And they did such a good job setting it up by having multiple conversations with Bomb 20 earlier mm-hmm. in the film and just the way they interact with Bomb 20. It's way better than something that would have been tried in the eighties where they would have been like typing to it, um, yeah. like war games. Well, the, the bomb is a character. That's the thing that's, that's so great is, you know, and, and it goes from being this computer with a personality to this computer that is completely self-aware and ultimately spoilers, I suppose, um, their destruction, their demise. Although uh, several of them kind of get what they want in the end. I, I, one of the things I really liked about this movie that, that, I love the way the two computers interacted. 
Yes. Uh, where there's just like, you need to get back in the bomb base. Like, nevertheless, I've been told to <laughs> deploy. It's like, yes, but that error is an error. Get back in. Well, yeah. And, and that's where, because I think that stuff works so well, that's where I kind of wish the 45 minute cut still existed somewhere mm-hmm. because I think it would have been that much more effective being just that tight story. Um, yeah. I, this I, was what an hour twenty five. I think yeah, it was the right something time. like that. It's it's definitely under ninety minutes. It didn't even really feel like an hour twenty five to me. It, it it went fast. I don't mind the detours here and there, um, but I I do think story wise, you can tell that it is a long short student film that was then expanded. You are right, but I I, I still think that they did a good job of making it feel a little wandering and episodic and I thought it was to its benefit for me. I just like that it I know it was only about, you know, a day that they spent on the ship or whatever. Yeah. Probably, but it it gave it a little more space which made it feel less like we blew one thing up we're immediately at the next one ready to blow it up too. So now it is time for a segment we are calling Score the Score. And this is a brand new segment on the show um, where we discuss uh, the score of John Carpenter films because he scores so many of his own films. Okay, I'm only doing this if we rate this uh, the score from a scale of zero to a score, which is 20. Okay. So if we can score the score out of a score, then I'm good. Okay. We will score the score out of a score. New rule set in place now. (laughs) Uh, Jake, where do you land on the score for, uh, dark star? It it wasn't super memorable, but I thought it worked. Uh, but it did have Benson, Arizona, which I guess is, I wouldn't call it the soundtrack. It's part of the score, I guess, but it was diegetic. I don't know where you draw the line. I don't care. I'm giving this a 12 out of a score. I, I would call it soundtrack, but at the same time, I think Carpenter did do the music for it. So I, I think it falls in line. I think it's definitely fair game. Um, I, Benson, Arizona is definitely the high point. Um, the, I mean, the main theme here, it's good. It's effective. Honestly, I like it better than like Prince of Darkness. Um, really? Yeah. Like I, I think it's more memorable than, than the Prince of Darkness, anything from the Prince of Darkness soundtrack. Personally, I couldn't hum either of them if we're being honest. But but it's sort of it it feels proto Carpenter. It feels I mean it feels very proto Halloween because it's very simple, um, kind of you know this droney little thing and and it it comes up again and again and again. Um, yeah, it's it's sort yeah. of a, a motive. Um, so I I mean it's obviously student film student score. Um, but if we're grading on that weighted scale, I'll give it a I don't know I'll give it a. 14? Yeah, I, I mean, since, since it is a student film, I should say it's like a 14 amongst its peers. Amongst its peers. That's Amongst its peers. That, that's it, good. It's a 14. I, I, mean, maybe, I mean, maybe even amongst its peers. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and be nice. 15 amongst its peers. All okay. right. That, that, that's, that's fair. That's, okay. I'll, I'll give you that. We have scored the score. Out of a score. Out of a score. Uh, up next, we've got Clash in the Carpenter. This is where we take the reigning champion of... Uh, each review, we we pick someone out from the film and have them go up against the reigning champion from the previous uh, rounds. Basically, one character against another. Uh, we began with R.J. McCready from The Thing. He has not been defeated yet. The uh, undefeatable R.J. McCready. The undefeatable R.J. McCready. Now, versus. Jake, I think we've got two options here. R.J. McCready versus 
Beach Ball Alien or RJ McCready versus Bomb Number Twenty. Yeah, which what do you think? Oh, that's well, we know who's gonna win. But so really, this is just a discussion of who gets to 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 go up against RJ McCready. I, Beach Ball Alien was good, but Bomb Number Twenty was the thing I'm gonna remember the longest because I I loved. I loved his little point of view. Whoever did the voice for him did a fantastic job yeah, just being yeah. peppy and upbeat. I'm going with Bomb 20. Okay, so RJ McCready versus Bomb number 20. Let's talk this out real quick. You think it's clear RJ McCready advances? Yes, because let's say they did get in a fight. McCready could solve this problem by pouring a glass of alcohol on it. We know how he handles computers. It's it's pouring alcohol in them when he loses in chess. He has so a, he wouldn't he, even be playing mental chess with this computer bomb. He has a history. You no, you make a good point because you know Boiler had a solid idea, which was grab the gun and uh, basically detach the bomb from the ship. Um, the problem was that uh, Pinback wouldn't let him do it. Essentially. I think RJ McCready would have been been able to get around pinbacks. So, you know, I honestly, leading up to this, when I was kind of setting this all out, I was thinking bomb number 20 might win this one for me. I think you've, you brought me around, though. Yeah, yeah. He, he knows how to handle it. He has experience defeating machines. Well, That's all I'm saying. Number one seed RJ McCready remains. Yes! <laughs> remains. Yes! I guess it's unanimous. I, I really thought this was going to come down to a tie. Um, oh no, no! We're, but but were you thinking he could beat the beach ball alien? I I thought you know there's there's definitely an argument to be made just in did he actually defeat the thing and the beach ball alien? Although I guess uh, pinback is no RJ McCready, so that's that's True. the other that's the other thing you got to take into account. And ultimately, I feel like, I feel like McCready would have popped him way earlier. Yeah. Way early. He wouldn't have, or, he wouldn't or have stuck come, a wire in him or something. He has a lot of tools to use. He wouldn't have come at him with a broom. That was a oh, rookie was, mistake. Uh, he wouldn't have been the guy feeding him to begin with. That's true. Because RJ McCready doesn't need no mascot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you ready to rate the cult of Carpenter for this film? I, I am. And I'm interested to see where this, where we, yeah, we, this is a we tough go with one. this. Are we, are we doing amongst its peers? No, this, this is amongst Carpenter films. Is this a Carpenter classic? Is this a deep dive or is it just for Johnny's mommy? Man, it's to be to be perfectly honest, it's a little hard not to go just for Johnny's mommy, just to see just seeing like how far he's come. Yes. But, but I think but, it's a I think it is a subterranean deep dive. Um I think it's definitely I, I would worth, just say it's a deep dive. I, I think it's definitely worth checking out, but it's also not a film that I think I can recommend to anyone, even if they're like, I love John Carpenter. No, it, I would. That's the thing. If someone said, I love John Carpenter, I'd say, well, you should see. You really should see. <laughs> that's that's the test. Do you yeah. really love John Carpenter? Yeah, but but it, it's it's not just for Johnny's mommy, which is like a stinker that I wouldn't tell a Carpenter fantasy. Like, oh, yeah, you don't need to see that at all. This has things that are interesting and relevant to someone who likes John Carpenter. Therefore, almost the definition of a deep dive. But it's not I, a classic. Uh, but one could argue that with the reaction that they got from or lack of a reaction they got from uh, the, the theater that they rented out to screen it in, um, someone might have walked out and said, well, you'll do better next time. Yeah, my next one will be better. It. It, I see what you're saying. 
I this is I could see the case for just for Johnny's mommy, except that John Carpenter went on for great things. He went on to great things, and he has a following who will go see him play music in concert. Those people are interested in seeing Dark Star. And and this is the you're right. This is the germination of both his career as a composer and as a director. And you can you can see buds of that. Uh, in both of these. And it, it is a film made from love and determination by striving artists at the beginning of their career that they cared enough to recurate and re-release, which tells me someone cares. Someone That's out true. there cares. It is a deep dive. It is not just for Johnny's mommy. Okay, you're bringing me around. I, I mean, it's... It is certainly a deep dive, but it is like I and I'll say like the more I've researched it and the then watching it again, like there's there's there actually are things to go back and enjoy and um okay, you've you won me over. I mean honestly it's it's worth it for just Dan O'Bannon's performance. It's worth it just for seeing sort of where Carpenter began as a composer. It's worth it for seeing where he began as a director and seeing that there's there's pieces there, but he's not fully formed. He's it's worth it to me. see the American spirit on screen, the hardworking film student making his first feature length film. Let's be honest. It's worth it to hear Benson, Arizona. Okay. Yeah. That, I'll just go with that. Benson, Arizona makes it a deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. So when you sit down to listen to Benson, Arizona and reluctantly watch the next 90 minutes of Dark Star, what beer are you going to crack open to help you get through the thing? Well, Jake, I've got a pick that uh, I'm, I'm trying to meld a couple things here. So as, as you know, I have just relocated from, uh, Oklahoma to the Lone Star State. And, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, are your local beer recommendations going to be Texas beers now? <laughs> A lot of them are. I'm not, I'm not going to abandon my Oklahoma beers, but here's right. the thing. For Dark Star, when you sit down to watch Dark Star, I think a, uh, equally palatable beer is Lone Star Lager from Lone Star Brewing Company in San Antonio. See what I did there? Dark Star, Lone Star. I'm in the Lone Star State. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Still from Texas. This is a beer that somehow holds the title of National Beer of Texas. I don't know exactly how that works. How can you be uh, the national beer of a state? I don't know. Uh, you know, Texas makes its own rules. Um, uh, well, actually, you haven't been in Texas long enough. Texas is a, a country, if you ask people from Texas. Is that right? I was born in Texas, been- man. I'm a Texan. Oh, you just cost all our listeners. I know. We have have no more listeners now. <laughs> uh, but Lone Star Lone Star Brewery was founded in the 19th century, back in like the 1880s. So it's been around a while, and it's sort of a rudimentary uh, macro lager. You're not going to find anything super amazing here, but it's a decent beer that you can pick up and and drink. You know, if you're if you're out um if you're out with friends on on a patio at a place that doesn't really have a very good beer selection, um, you know, I I have no problem ordering a couple lone stars and just enjoying myself. You know, there the the way that I'm viewing this and trying to tie it into Dark Star here is I'm sure it was a fine beer 130 years ago, uh, but it doesn't really hold a candle to <laughs> the real beer of today. And I'm sure Dark Star was still impressive, even, you know, definitely impressive as a student short, even pretty impressive as a feature film, given, you know, like the uh, it's it, well, I think the the visual effects don't totally hold up to today's standards. Back then, they weren't the worst thing ever. They, you know, it's not, it's, it's not a ship on a string that you can see dangling. Um, so it's sort of, I, I think they're, they're, 
they're kindred spirits. Um, and, you know, I think there's still something to love about both of them, even with their flaws. So next time you sit down to watch Dark Star, and I recommend you do, enjoy it with a Lone Star Lager. Dark Star is currently streaming on Fandor and Shudder. Or, if you're still a fan of physical media, there's a pretty solid Blu-ray with a making-up documentary that's longer than the actual film. If you've got something to say about Dark Star, hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, at PorkchopExpress at CarpenterCast.com, and he'll relay the message to us. Or, if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around, we'll be back after the break with my recap of week three in the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League fall season. Now the years pull us apart, I'm young and now you're old, but you're still in my heart, and the memory won't grow cold, I dream of times and spaces I left far behind, where we spent our last few days, Benson's on my mind. And now it's time for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League Recap. Each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports-style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight-screen cineplex with real-world movies where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit wsampod.com slash league to sign up and get all the details. So let's dive into our recap of week three of our fall season. Chris and I may spend our time watching old Blu-rays of one of the masters of horror, but that doesn't mean we're completely ignoring the 400-pound horror gorilla in the room this week. And partly that's because the gorilla is also wearing some terrifying clown makeup. In week three, Andy Muschietti slash Stephen King's It dominated the box office yet again and has permeated popular culture the way I'm assuming Tim Curry did 27 years ago when the original miniseries aired. But in 1990, they didn't have social media to create hilarious Pennywise sewer memes. It's been trending on Twitter, so I have to ask you, Chris, what would Pennywise have to say to get you to go down there with him? Ooh, I don't know. Only two things that come to mind. I mean, here's the thing, Jake. The internet exists, and so, like, most of the things that I, you know, used to long for, I can just get at a whim now. So it's mm-hmm. it's got to be either some, like, lost John S. Rat interview. Uh, <laughs> that That would probably get me there. Or maybe the uh, Architecture in Helsinki album, Fingers Crossed, on red vinyl. Oh, I, I I look for that once a month, easy. Some of the best ones I saw was like, Chick-fil-A is always open on Sundays down here. <laughs> uh, and then another one I saw was, movie theaters don't allow cell phones or obnoxious talking down here. And then I thought, well, that's just, that's just Chris can go there anytime. It's called Alamo Draft House. Yeah, that's true. You, you don't even have to go to the, to the sewer. No. Yeah, but do you know what would get me down there? If Pennywise offered me any type of tip on next week in FML, I mean, this season has been wild already uh, with the old guard falling off big time and Cineplex. Did you see that ludicrous display last night (laughs) being first in our league and 62nd overall? Hey, uh, Jake, who's second in our league right now? I I actually didn't check. Is it you? It's me. Are you still trying to do poorly? We can get to this. We can get to this. (sighs) 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, I can tell you how he succeeded and probably the same stuff you did to succeed accidentally. Uh, for starters, he trusted the Dark Tower's late theater count surge to score a best performer bonus at the bottom of an American Assassin heavy lineup. He didn't get the middle films right, opting for Logan Lucky and Mother instead of two screens of Home Again. Uh, but the interesting thing to me is the continuing evolution of Michael Keaton in American Assassin. I don't know if you saw the trailer, but it, it seems like Michael Keaton's just going to be an action star now. I don't know anything about this uh, this American Assassin. That's the one that looks like like cheap teenage Jason Bourne or something, right? Uh, I actually assumed it was Edgar Wright uh, at first, just because he's kind of got that dark, messy hair and a beard. Uh, I watched the trailer. wasn't for me. Yeah. Uh, but it has Michael Keaton in it, so it's not like I would say no and not see it. I don't know. I might still say no. <laughs> okay, well, if, if you do say to know that one, this week does have five new films, so I think we should go through them one by one. You want to help me out? Yeah, sure. The sequel to the action movie that nobody thought would be good drops this weekend when Kingsman The Golden Circle hits theaters. Will this sequel justify its astronomical 511 buck price tag when Stephen King's It is still out there for a fairly measly 352 bucks? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know, Chris. Uh, I, I didn't see this first movie, but everybody told me it was great. Do you think kind of being what feels like a little bit of a cult movie is it, is it going to draw in crowds i hope it does because i've got it at the top of my cineplex right now um you know i know a lot of people that love this movie i didn't like it my wife really liked it so hmm. i don't know i don't know what that means speaking of stuff i don't know about a franchise i do understand meets a franchise i've barely heard of in the lego ninjago movie uh are you prepared to top your lineup with the first major challenge for the lego spinoff brand even if it is at a fairly priced 389 bucks, I am because it's Lego and because the cast looks really good. Yeah, but do you do you think parents are going to take the parents probably trust Lego brand, but do they know or trust what Ninjago is? I don't even really understand that one. I, I think it probably has a built in audience. Maybe I, I, I just feel like remember when we were a kid and you could watch like Power Rangers or you could watch Big Bad Beetleborgs. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like Ninjago is like big, bad Beetleborgs, like even amongst like properties, that's gotta be a B. It's not an A list one, but look at, look at that cast, man. I know. I know. I, I know. Yeah. No, I, I think you're, I think you're wrong on this. I think it'll be, I think it'll do fine. I'm not touching it. All right. But, uh, let me just remind you who's in second place right now. I don't even want to talk about it. Uh, next up, I, I don't even know where to start on this movie friend request. I mean, imagine Facebook licensed a movie, uh, but it was a horror film, and it was about unfriending a girl, and also a haunted house movie, maybe, and also going up against the biggest horror movie of the last few years, so don't play it, especially at 66 bucks. Like, did you see this trailer? Wait, this is, didn't this movie already exist? Isn't it called Unfriended, and didn't it come out like a year and a half, two years ago? Wait, was that the one where, like, everybody was on Skype together and kept dying? Yes. No, th yes. this one looks different. It's like the girl doesn't friend a girl, and then that girl that didn't friend, like that didn't get the her friend request accepted, maybe kills herself, and then haunts that person's Facebook, and also like her house. I don't... That sounds she, kind of like unfriended. <laughs> I, I, I just think Facebook, they were like, should we, should we license movies that like show how good Facebook is? No, let's show people going to hell if they unfriend somebody. Like I, I don't know if it has Facebook branding, but it has the colors of Facebook in there, and it looks yeah. just like Facebook. Huh. Uh, it's a weird one. Yeah, I, I, fake movie. Moving on. 
Uh, <laughs> up next, we've got Brad Status. It stars Ben Stiller in another one of those not quite comedies that he seems to be finding himself in lately. The price tag on this is only 22 bucks, but will fans turn out for a Mike White movie that isn't School of Rock? And also, how great was School of Rock? Man, School of Rock was great. I wish we had somebody who would be on the podcast who hadn't seen School of Rock so we could do it as a war crime, just so I can talk about how much I love School of Rock. And, I, and I'm not talking about Cineplex School of Rock frequent FML champion. Uh, little little foreshadowing, you know who directed School of Rock? Who directed School of Rock? Richard Linklater. Yeah, I, I, always, I always forget that because it's not as uh, meandering as some of his other films are. Right. But uh, maybe, maybe we'll cover more of that in a little bit. So... <laughs> Uh, finally, Steve Carell and Emma Stone take to the court in a well-advertised and well-reviewed film about the time in 1973 when Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King squared off on a tennis court. Will Battle of the Sexes land in enough screens to make it a steal at only eight bucks? This is, I kind of want to see this one. You saw the trailer for this one, Chris? Yes, I saw the trailer for it. I heard coming out of Toronto, a lot of people were saying that it was fun and it was cute and they enjoyed it. And, uh, I think it looks, I think it looks fun. I would like to see it. I... I just don't know if people are going to like turn out in droves to see it, but for a little anchor at the bottom, it might be fine. Yeah. It, the weird thing about this week is there's not really a way to just fit like seven screens of this and something else in. Uh, even if you think it is going to get uh, best performer, which I, I do. I, the, that's my call for this week. Uh, we'll know when the, when the theater counts come out, but I, I think it looks fun, like you said. And I think, like I, I talked to my girlfriend and I said the trailer was on. I said I kind of want to see this. She said we're in, we're going. This is this is one we want to see. Nice. Yeah. So it, and if it gets that kind of reaction, I think hey, this this could be a little little stealth hit this weekend. Yeah, I got it at the I got it at the bottom. So we'll we'll see. Of the five movies we talked about, I've got all but that fake one. Friend request is that what it's called? Yeah. One one week I literally need to slip a fake movie in here. <laughs> Just make one up. And go through it and see if you can actually tell. Right now, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Like that one, that one legitimately could be fake. Um, but you, you asked earlier about my, what I, what I'm trying to do this season. So I've tweaked it a little bit. I'm still filling up with using every single one of my bucks available, but I'm not trying to do as poorly as possible. I have only one goal beyond spending all my bucks. And that is, is that? that is beating Randy. Now, who is Randy, you might ask? Randy is my friend Brett. Why is his name Randy? I don't know. But uh, he is playing in the league. He is actually in, I believe, Afghanistan right now, uh, playing along with us. And uh, so my name is Ghost Randy Busters, because not only is our nickname for him Randy, but it's also Ghost Randy. And so he has named his Cineplex Ghost Randy Busters Killers. So we have a real rivalry going. If, if there's one thing I love, it's jokes with an audience of one, exactly. even if I'm not the audience. So I'm fully in support of this. <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing that I like. I mean, to be perfectly honest, the, the main reason that I uh, did all of this was because I noticed that there were a couple of weeks uh, last season where he just forgot to set his lineup. So I figured if I antagonize mm -hmm. him enough, he'll set his lineup every week. And he's been competitive. Yeah, and if not, you get to antagonize him even more. Yeah. Exactly. This season, I'm going to try to mix it up by doing well. <laughs> How's that working out for you so far? Uh, not not good. I'm like seventh. But but like I said up top, all, all the old timers are, are slipping. Uh, I think Lacey is at fourth. I'm at seventh and Phil is at 10th. And that is normally uh, one, two, three with me always being in third, of course. Yeah. Well, maybe you should get like me. Stop reading the uh, the chatter 
and go with three screens of uh, Sunday It. That's what I think really put me on top. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I didn't do that. I went Friday It. But look, this week I'm going to It, for American Assassin, to Battle of the Sexes. It's the, it's the only combination I could find that had a good anchor and uh, also a couple of Battle of the Sexes at the bottom. Yeah, that, that sounds all right. But are you using every buck? No, I got eight of them left. See, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. What you're doing? Uh, I'm doing Kingsman, Ninjago, Mother, which I know isn't going to make any money, but also it's dropped in price some, and I think it's getting enough like weird buzz that maybe it'll keep people interested and just going to see like why everyone's so mad. And then I've got two Brad Statuses. I've got a Battle of the Sexes, and then I'm rounding it out with two Dunkirks. All right, all right. I, I, I can follow that. Here's my question. How mad on a scale of 1 to 10 would my girlfriend be if I told her we were seeing Battle of the Sexes and I just we just walked into Mother and I didn't say anything? <laughs> she would walk out. I mean, she would walk out in the first. Like, she would walk out. If you still need more FML in your life, catch my weekly recaps and predictions each week on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take for the next Perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAMPod. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. Jake, it is really rad recommendation time once again, and I'm curious what you have to recommend this week. Is it something? Is it a student film? A a student film turned into a feature length film? No. Although, was Slacker a student film turned into a feature length film? I don't think so, but it easily could have been. I mean, it's so episodic. One of the things I wanted to say during our review was, uh, even though I may have compared it to Kubrick, the other thing that this film reminded me of was like a Richard Linklater in space. Mm-hmm. just sort mm-hmm. of that it's a, it's a lot of talking it's kind of calm and laid laid back for most of it It had more of a plot than i associate with a lot of link later but it still had that same like guys of a certain age hanging out talking yeah it had it, it definitely had particularly when you have like Doolittle and talby um you know up in the talking mm-hmm. about like i i just want to be surfing and, and all that that definitely has the hangout movie vibe to it exactly so i wanted to recommend my personal favorite link later uh which is 2016's Everybody Wants Some with two exclamation points. I don't know how we how we missed reviewing this on the on the podcast, but this was every time I watch it and I've watched it a couple times now, it moves up my list for 2016. Yeah. This this is probably the movie from last year that I missed in the initial run. I think I I think I saw it in like well no, I saw it after we did Best of the Year, I'm pretty sure. Um, I know I saw it after we did Best of the Year. No, Maybe I saw it right before because I think I, whenever I saw it, it, it immediately went my top five. Yeah, no, it, it's exactly the same for me. Like it is an infinitely rewatchable film. It is the film from last year that I want to watch more than any other film. Like, and I, and I have, like if I have nothing else to do uh, or if I just want something to, you know, like put on in the background and it's, it's a good fun time. This movie is perfect for that. 
and and I agree, except to me, it, it commands my attention because I want to know how it is as magic as it is. It perfectly yeah. captures the, the, the three days before college starts, I believe it is, for a group of uh, uh, college baseball players. And, and we follow freshman Jake, played by Blake Jenner, who comes in to a team at, I think it's like Southeast Texas University or something along yeah, yeah. those lines. Um, and and uh, a, a great role by Glenn Powell as Finnegan, as sort of the older, maybe like the senior baseball player who, who starts showing Jake the world of college and explaining yeah, them. He's, he's a philosopher, man, that it, it's a movie. It's got some great quotes in it. it. It's doesn't have like what you would probably think of as a plot because it's just this meandering link later film. Yeah. Uh, but it does have great performances from Zoe Dutch, Glenn Powell, Blake Jenner, the, the one that also ties it into the Carpenter universe. Fantastic performance by Wyatt Russell, son of Kurt Russell. <laughs> He's so good. And he's like, he's so I think you didn't know that it was Kurt Russell's son when you saw I it. I didn't. Right? I was just like, why do I like this guy so much? And then later I was like, oh, of course that's why. I think I said something about, well, what did you think of Kurt Russell's son? You thought I was just making a joke that he looked like Kurt Russell. No, Kurt Russell's son's in this and he's fantastic. I mean, the entire cast is is really great though. There's a guy who looks like a really buff, like Weird Al Yankovic, who gets like real like <laughs> angry all the time um oh man this this movie's so much fun it's like it's one of those that like when i recommend it to people i say like i know the trailer the trailer looked pretty bad um and that may have been my my initial apprehension um but it you know the i know the trailer was bad give it five minutes and if you're not hooked in in five minutes maybe it's not your thing but you're going to be just sucked straight in so much fun. I, I don't want to call it the ultimate baseball movie or the ultimate college movie, but the more I watch it, the more it moves up both of those ranks. Yeah. While not being a baseball movie or a college movie, it, it's a it's just a movie about life. Yeah. And and what it means at 18 to these baseball players. No, exactly. And it's got that total Linklater vibe. It's like, I think, you know, if you had the plot of this movie by someone else, it would be like this countdown that feels like, oh, no, we're getting to the start of school. But every time you see a X amount of days or hours until class, it just feels like this leisurely like jaunt of where we're getting close, but it doesn't matter. We're going to just see what happens. Look, I, I could talk all day about this. Don't take my word for it. Go find it on on Amazon, Hulu, Epic, stream it, stream it now, stream it tonight. This is what you should be doing. I'm probably going to go and put it on when we're done talking. <laughs> Double endorsement. What about you, Chris? What do you have for this week? Um, I'm going a little different this week. I'm going to actually recommend a podcast that I've been binging as I've been traveling and unpacking. Uh, this show is called The Secret History of Hollywood, and it's narrated by a guy, I believe his name is Adam Roach. Um, and it's sort of like if hardcore history, you must remember this, and an audiobook had a baby. Well, how can I say no to that? <laughs> It's it's really good. The the thing is the the hardcore history end of it is it's really long. So um there he's done two series. I think he's in the middle of uh his Val Luton series. It's called uh Shadows, the Val Luton story right now. I haven't listened to any of those yet. He's got three episodes of that up. But the first three episodes were called Bullets and Blood, and it was a three-part series on the history of the Warner Brothers. And when I say the history of the Warner Brothers, I mean it starts in the 18th century with their father in Poland and then ends in the 60s when they sell off the company. So this really is like like the the the, the Dan Carlin take 
even if it's not Dan Carlin, like they go back as far as you can and continue as long as you can. So, so it is, but the, the audiobook element of it is it's all narrated with conversations and it's narrated like a novel. Um, so you get a lot of these details that clearly like he wouldn't necessarily have the exact conversation or the exact detail of the inner monologue of a character, that sort of thing. But he uses that to, um, sort of make it feel richer and deeper than just like, and then so-and-so did this and then this happened. Um, and it covers, it covers the Warner brothers. It covers James Cagney and it, it also has this kind of, uh, novel feel where it'll start on something and you're not even sure like how this story relates to anything. Like when it starts with James Cagney, he doesn't say James Cagney's name for, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 minutes. And then finally it comes around and, and you know, he, uh, he, he says the Cagney last name, and then it all sort of clicks. Um, it's really great. This is, but in three episodes, close to 20 hours. And the last, the third episode is just a few minutes shy of nine hours. So this is a epic, epic, uh, story, which I mean, with, with a scale like that, it's gotta be. Um, but I was totally sucked in. I mean, it's the type of thing that I'm not sure I generally would be able to, uh, spend the time on, but I actually breezed through the whole thing in, I think a little under a week. So the next time you're moving to Texas, pick up the Secret History of Hollywood podcast. <laughs> yeah. Or no, I, th- I think it was just over a week. I think it was like maybe eight or nine days, but, uh, really good, really addictive, um, very well narrated. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to, to jump into the Val Luden story. I honestly don't know too much about, um, about Val Luden. So, uh, but I, I love the style. I highly recommend it. Um, if you're, if you're looking into the Luden stuff, those episodes are a little shorter. And by that, I mean like two, two and a half hours. Um, not, I mean, I think the shortest one in the Warner brothers is like four something. Four and wow. some change, maybe. But I listen to hardcore history, so that's like ah, one of the shorter ones. Exactly, and that's that's kind of where I, I started out. I was like, well, I mean, I'll, I'll try this instead, and it's I was totally hooked. It's so good. Uh, that is the Secret History of Hollywood, the podcast. Yeah, so I wonder if there's going to be a making of the Secret History of Hollywood podcast documentary that's longer <laughs> than the Secret History of Hollywood. Oh boy, I. <laughs> It takes a short movie to get a making of longer than the movie. Right. But I, I think it's just Dark Star and Lord of the Rings, and that's it. <laughs> that's yeah, the Lord extent of the, of Lord, of the, Lord of the Rings is a special, special case. Well, and Dangerous Men. But oh. we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. Yeah, well, as soon as we have time, we'll get to that. <laughs> All right. Well, that is a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And check out our Mothership podcast at warstartsmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person at the gym who's always listening to podcasts, or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits... Go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at Express at carpentercast.com. Or if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and you just might hear it featured on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey. 
We're dedicating the month of October to John Carpenter on War Starts at Midnight and The Carpenter Shop. So next month, we've got not one, but two new episodes for you. First, we'll dive into Jacob's personal war crime and discuss Halloween, the little indie horror film that put John Carpenter on the map. Then, we're taking a little detour to discuss Chris's personal war crime, John Carpenter's 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's story of a bloodthirsty muscle car, Christine. Check out CarpenterCast.com to find out where each of these films is playing. Thanks for listening, folks. Now it's time to go sleepy by, you worthless piece of garbage. Said, said everything's bigger in Texas, and I'm like, wow, man, size that. It's just incredible. You go to Texas, and every everything's bigger. Get a hamburger, wow. it's the size of two hamburgers because you're in Texas. It's wow.